our joy in, in the faith. Well, that's the bit I wasn't going to say. Now, let's move on to the bit I was planning to, uh, to say. Um, it was um, St. Augustine in the 4th century who observed that the fundamental human quest is the search for happiness. The fundamental human quest is the search for happiness. Uh, last year, The Guardian ran um, a piece under the headline, How to be Happy. Uh, and the article um, suggested five easy steps, all of which are under our control. There was a huge amount that's commonsensical about what followed. Here's the first thing. Don't pursue happiness. If you want to be happy, don't pursue happiness. Recognise things that make you happy and do those things. Don't pursue happiness. Number two, take responsibility. Don't blame others if you're not happy. Well, that's good sense. Thirdly, don't compare yourselves with other people. If you link your happiness to what other people are doing or being or whatever, you will constantly be condemned to unhappiness. So don't compare. Go with the flow. Do stuff that so completely are kind of obsesses you or preoccupies you that you don't care how well or poor you're doing. You just enjoy it. And number five, trust. The more you trust people, the happier you'll be. Well, it wouldn't be a bad thing to jot those five things down and see how many of them we kind of think are really good at the end. I think the question I want to ask is how good are we doing? How well are we doing? And I think the answer is not very well. See, for all the sort of massive advances in science and technology, for, for all the astonishing increase in wealth and health, most people today are deeply, deeply uneasy. I think if we did a little survey around Oxford today and just said out of ten, how happy are you? Generally speaking, I suspect the answers would be five or less. Uh, he's not easy to quote these days, but let's get Tony Blair before he became Prime Minister in 1997, he, he said this, We enjoy a thousand material advantages over any previous generation, yet we suffer a depth of insecurity and spiritual doubt they never knew. We enjoy a thousand material advantages over any previous generation, and yet we suffer a depth of insecurity and spiritual doubt they never knew. Well, this weekend, today and tomorrow, I want to introduce you to one of the happiest, most cheerful books in the world of literature. It's Paul's letter to the Philippians. And what I love about Philippians, amongst many things, is the way that it gives us a kind of insight into one of the most influential figures in world history. Because here in Philippians, the Apostle Paul opens his heart to us. Paul's in real trouble. We'll kind of find out a little bit more about that in a moment. And yet his letter is full of joy. But before we kind of dive into the letter, I just want to take one step back and, and just see if I could summarise for you what the Bible says about happiness. And 
and you may not like this, but I am kind of using joy and happiness as largely kind of synonymous. I'm using happy in the way that the authorised version uses the word happy. I reckon that was a kind of uh, unbeatable defence. So here's the Bible on happiness. First of all, happiness is possible. That is a thunderous statement. Happiness is possible. I think most of us start from the standpoint that happiness is the natural state. Of course there are loads of unhappy people around, but the reason they're unhappy is because they're screwed up one way or another. But as time goes on and we start to experience reality, we discover that life is nowhere near as straightforward as that. And the more we read and the more we enjoy the world of literature, we begin to discover that the great world literature is not about happiness, it's about the search for happiness. And so I think we swing to the other end of the pendulum, not that happiness is a natural state, but that happiness is impossible, unachievable. So the statement that happiness is possible is a hugely significant one. Here's a second observation, I think, from the Bible. Happiness is fundamental. And what I mean by that is happiness is heart deep. It's not just about our circumstances. It is about who we are. There's nothing superficial about happiness. So it's not a kind of light-hearted jocularity, a, a permanent plastic grin. And strangely, the happiness that is fundamental is often stimulated by suffering. And thirdly, and here's a real link with um, the Guardian uh, article, happiness is never found directly. Seek happiness and you'll never find it. Happiness is always the byproduct of something else. The Bible never says, blessed are the ones who hunger and thirst for blessedness. It says, Blessed are the ones who hunger and thirst for something else, for righteousness. So, the Bible says, seek righteousness more than happiness, and you'll get both. Seek happiness more than righteousness, and you won't get either. So, there's a kind of little summary of the Bible on happiness. So often what makes us happy and this is the conundrum. So often what makes us happy comes to an end. The perfect night out comes to an end. The perfect holiday comes to an end. Most tragic, the perfect marriage comes to an end. I, I don't want to trample on anybody's sensibilities, but the very, very best marriage in the world ends badly. No marriage ends well. It ends in death or desertion. And we are heartbroken. All of which brings me back to Philippians. And the way Paul begins, so we're here at last. Just look with me at verse 3, will you? And I, I'm so sorry, I, I know you're extra sound version people here, and I'm, I'm a nearly infallible version man, so, so you'll have to forgive my failings on that point. But just look at verse 3 with me, will you? I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
Gosh, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And what lies at the heart of this joy? Well, it is his partnership with these friends of his in Philippi. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What an interesting concept partnership is. I want to suggest to you that that partnership lies at the very heart of reality. That the maker of heaven and earth is the God who exists in glorious, eternal, triune partnership. Father, Son and Holy Spirit enjoying a relationship of mutual love through all the eons of eternity, if you can get your head around that. And we're created in the image of this gloriously, deliciously divine partnership. So we're not surprised at all to discover that Adam simply cannot achieve the task of forming and filling all by himself. It is impossible. It's not like he'd be a whole lot happier if he had Eve to help him. It's just that he can't do the job without Eve to help him. He can't function without a partner. Which makes Adam and Eve the archetypal partnership. And I want to suggest that partnership is fundamental to our life and our experience of happiness. And that's what we discover here in Philippians chapter 1. So let's think, shall we, first of all, about Paul's joy in partnership. What one of the features of modern life, and I guess you, you'll find it if you um, have a, a look at some of the <coughs> newspapers um, this afternoon in the quiet room, uh, is that we know absolutely everything about the outside of our heroes. That the media loves to pry into every aspect and photograph every antic of a George Clooney or a Pippa Middleton. We know all about the exterior of their lives, but we we know absolutely nothing about the real them. We don't know what thoughts dominate their minds. We don't know about their hopes or their fears. We know absolutely nothing about their joys or their sorrows. We, We never ever get to find out what makes them tick. Now I say all that because as we come into Philippians chapter 1, we discover that what the Apostle Paul says about himself is exactly the reverse of that. We know absolutely nothing about his appearance. I think there's probably enough little kind of hints and glimpses here and there that the Apostle Paul was not George Clooney. We don't know anything about his favourite food. Was it Indian or Italian? We don't know anything about his dress sense. Oxfam or white stuff. But here in this passage, he lets us know things that really matter. He lets us into his inner being. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. Gosh, that's kind of quite intimate language, isn't it? For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ. I want you to know how I feel about you. 
I have you in my heart. I long for you. I long for you with the affection of Christ. That's quite often personal, isn't it? We might call Philippians Paul's Ode to Joy. Not a, a kind of Oklahoma sort of way with Curly singing, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling everything's going my way, because it isn't. I mean, here is Paul. He's in prison just now. I have absolutely no concept at all about what prison would be like and how I would survive. But can you imagine? No, you can't. Let me say it another way. You simply can't begin to imagine what it would be like for this busy activist who's used to crisscrossing the, the empire of his day to be banged up within four walls. How do you think he feels? Well, the answer is remarkably cheerful. Actually, when you read this letter, you discover that Paul is far more concerned about what's happening to his friends in Philippi than what's happening to him here in Rome. Just look again at verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, what I love about that, what I'm astounded, gobsmacked about that, is this. Paul's emotional world isn't confined by the four walls of his cell. His body may be bound, but his heart is free. And from his prison cell, he reaches out across the Adriatic Sea to this church in Philippi. What's happening to them there matters so much more than what's happening to him here. And I guess I want to ask myself, have I experienced this kind of widening of my human heart, my inner life, so that it's not simply my concerns that dominate me? It's been said rightly that those who are wrapped up in themselves make very small parcels. So what explains this heart-widening, this joy-giving dynamic in Paul's life. I, I ask this question, I'm intrigued by this question, because I, I may be wrong about this, but I, I'm not entirely convinced that Paul is naturally a very other person-oriented man. When we first meet him, way back in the beginning of the, early on in the book of Acts, he seems to me to be a very driven individual, very task-oriented, so how come he's changed? Well, look with me again at verse 7. And you'll discover this isn't something he's done, this isn't behaviour that he's learned. And he puts it down to something that's happened to him. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. You share in God's grace with me. Paul's experience of God's grace began on the road to Damascus, remember. He was on his way to bring mayhem and misery into the lives of the Christian community there. But it was there in the dust of the Damascus road that Jesus broke into Paul's life. It was there that Paul discovered that the world didn't revolve around him. 
And that day the Apostle Paul became some part of something infinitely bigger than anything he thought about before. He found himself being caught up in the purposes of God. And it's that experience of God's grace that lies at the heart of Paul's state of mind just now in his Roman cell. Of course, the wonderful thing is that what happened to Paul there, then, has happened to the Christians in Philippi since. You can't miss that that little word all that runs throughout these um, early verses. That there's something wonderfully inclusive about this early passage. And there's a very good reason why. And they find the key in the very first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. They all enjoy the status of being saints, no less. Now, we hear the word saint and immediately start to think about icons and stained glass windows and monks with big bellies and bald heads. Hmm. Well, just for a moment, scrap those ideas, will you? Paul unpacks in verse 6 for us what it means to be a saint. Being very being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. According to the New Testament, a Christian, a saint, is someone in whom God has started to do a good work. Now, to claim that I am a saint... Sounds like the worst kind of self-serving arrogance, doesn't it? Who on earth do you think you are? Well, I have got a big belly and a bald head. But in fact, it isn't self-serving at all. It's actually quite the opposite. To say that I am a saint is to confess that I am what I am, not because I'm gifted or talented or wonderful at all. I am what I am. Because God is doing something in me and for me that I could never, ever do for myself. Verse 6 is one of the most God-centered verses in the Bible. It describes something that God has kicked off in the past. He started this. It describes something he's doing in the present. True Master mind style. He started, so he's going to finish. It describes something he's doing with the, the future in view, however much I may fail him in the present. He's never going to give up on me, no matter how difficult or painful or tiresome or frustrating or my circumstances may be. I cherish this conviction that God is getting me ready for something bigger, for the day of Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have that confidence too. God's at work. And it's this shared experience of what God is doing in us, for us, through us that binds us together. The basis of our fellowship is not a shared commitment to a particular way of doing church. The basis of our fellowship is our common experience of God's grace. If you are God's people you must be my people too. That's who we are. So before I press on, can I just ask whether you have anything of that kind of conviction this morning? I could ask the question this way. Is your idea of the Christian faith a natural thing 
or a supernatural thing? Is it something you do or is it something God does in you? See, what excites Paul so much, even in his prison cell, is that he and his friends in Philippi share a partnership in grace. But as the passage goes on, we get to see how a shared experience of grace leads to a shared commitment to the gospel. And we're ready, in a sense, to move on from issues of identity to issues of activity. Joy in gospel proclamation. Now, this may not be a very appealing illustration, but try and hang in there for a moment. Why do you get so worked up when you see an ant on the worktop in your kitchen at home? And I want to suggest it's not simply because of all the bacteria on its six hairy little legs. I think it's more to do with this. When you see one ant, you know there are more to come. Spot one ant, and you realise that there's a whole nest of them out there in the patio. At this very moment, plotting and planning how they're going to invade your kitchen. Now, while the thought, that thought may distress you, it greatly encourages the ant. He, too, knows he's not the only one. There's a whole nest of them out there with plans. Now, I'm not going to press that illustration too far. <clears throat> but... Here's the point. For Paul, the gospel is God's good news to this world. It's God's wonderful way of remaining absolutely true to himself and being astonishingly kind to us. And he's made this impossibility possible through the work of Jesus who died on the cross in our place. And we'll think a bit more about that later. And on the basis of everything that Jesus has done, God calls on us to repent and believe the wonderful good news of the gospel. And Paul's been commissioned to preach this good news. But here's the point, the kind of the connection with the ants. He knows he's not on his own. He's like that little ant on the worktop. There are believers in Philippi. And believers all over the place who've been enlisted to support him and to work with him in this grand plan. And whatever happens to him personally is only ever one tiny little part of God's great big plan that can never ever be thwarted. So as we go on through the chapter, just come with me to verse 12, will you? Sorry, if you wanted this to be a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Philippians, I better confess now. Verse 12, I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What? And here's Paul saying that even, in his, even his imprisonment has, has served to push forward God's plans to rescue people. He's able to declare the gospel to the whole palace guard in Rome. I reckon that could be up to 12,000 people. I don't know whether Paul gets to meet all of them. But he gets to influence loads of them. And I bet he asks questions about their family and their friends and what they do when they're off duty and the things that worry them and what's good about working for the empire and loads of stuff about that. I can imagine Paul was brilliant at the small talk. But inevitably they would ask the question, and what's a man like you doing in a place like this? And Paul would have great joy in telling them that he was suffering for the Lord Jesus. But it isn't just the impact of his imprisonment on his own ministry. 
But well, he goes on to say that his friends in Philippi are now declaring the gospel with renewed confidence. Some of them are doing it because they've seen the, the impact, the power of Paul's testimony, and that's emboldened them. Maybe some of Paul's critics are doing it because they're saying, ha-ha, look what's happened to him. This kind of paves the way for us. But whether they're doing it out of good reasons or bad, Paul's just thrilled that God's great plan to advance the gospel is moving forward. And his conclusion is in verse 18, because of this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And what's true for the Paul and the Philippians is wonderfully true for us, dear brothers and sisters. Here we are in Bethel Otley this morning, called into something far bigger than ourselves. Verse 5. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What a great word, partnership, is. We often translate the Greek word koinonia as fellowship. <clears throat> that's right. But I'm not sure that's terribly helpful. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the word fellowship. Almost invariably, for me, it involves singing and usually with coffee in hand. Fellowship is kind of what happens after church. Uh, that is absolutely what, not, what Paul is not talking about here. Just think about some of the famous partnerships that have graced our lives over the years. The partnership between Rolls and Royce, Marks and Spencer, Romeo and Juliet, Morecambe and Wise, Simon and Garfunkel, Anton Deck. Okay, so they don't all work well. <clears throat> but listen, in every case, two parties have come together to accomplish more than they could ever achieve on their own. And in the case of Ant and Deck, two parties have come together to achieve nothing. Anyway, that's a separate issue. <coughs> Here's the point. Don't ever think that partnerships come cheap. They don't. Those of us who are married worked that out years ago. They are never straightforward. They demand sacrifice. Sacrifice in terms of time and effort. Sacrifice in terms of give and take, blood and sweat, toil and tears. And this partnership is no different. Just think about the, the partnership between Paul and the Philippians. It's cost Paul his freedom. He's in prison today. And it's cost the Philippians a whole load of money. Because remember that amongst other things, this, this letter to, that Paul writes is a thank you letter. He kind of picks that up right at the very end. Just listen to this from chapter 4. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Don't be under any illusions. Partnership is a costly business. Above all, partnership means looking above your own immediate personal concerns. And that's what's in Paul's mind as he talks about this gospel partnership. It's a joint commitment that to uh, sharing the Lord Jesus that flows out of a joint experience of knowing the Lord Jesus. 
And if we're going to take Philippians seriously, we've got to take partnership seriously. Partnership here, among us, within Bethel Church, Otley. But maybe partnership more broadly than that. Did you notice the little hint of frustration in Paul's voice back in chapter 4? Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Paul was always on the lookout for gospel partners, people who'd worked with him. And frankly, sometimes he was disappointed. Back at home in Market Harbour, we've spent a very long time working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. I, I don't know what you think the book of Romans is about, but I think it is a passionate appeal for this church in Rome to partner with him as he wants to make his way to Spain. He kind of spells it all out as he gets to the end of the book. I know there's loads of you, he says, who are deeply suspicious of me. I don't want to come and visit you and spend all my time having to explain myself and defend myself. Let's get it all out there before I come, so that when I come, I can come with joy. And you'll welcome me with that open embrace and warm hearts. And then maybe we can talk about how to do the gospel together in Spain. See, if we want to see the world reach for the Lord Jesus, we've got to find ways of working together. There are workers to be trained. Let's step back for a moment. It's not rocket science. Brothers and sisters, it really isn't rocket science. If we want to see the spiritual temperature of this nation changed, how it happens, and God brings the increase, but we've got to plant more churches. There's just got to be more gospel outlets. If 97, just think about this, 97% of the people around us, around here, within a mile of this building, if 97% of them are unforgiven as yet, unprepared for eternity as yet, not ready to meet God as yet, we've got to have more gospel outlets. And more gospel outlets means more gospel churches. And more gospel churches mean we've got to plant loads of churches, we've got to revitalise loads of churches, and if we're going to plant them and revitalise them, we've got to have people to work in them. So it isn't difficult to work out what we ought to be doing, is it? And don't think that we can pull it all off on our own, because we know that we've got to have God doing it for us. But the point is we can't train enough workers, we can't plant enough churches, we can't revitalise enough struggling causes if we're just going to do it on our own. We've got to find ways of doing it with others. Thank God for Gospel Yorkshire. Churches doing things together they could never do by themselves. And don't think, will you, that this is some kind of secondary issue for Paul, something kind of peripheral. Just read Acts, read the epistles, read Paul's heart. You'll see how much of his time, how much of his energy is devoted to encouraging this kind of partnership between churches. So why are we here this morning? Well, Paul's answer is that we're not here to meet our own needs. Or not just here to meet our own needs. We're not just here to fulfil our own personal ambitions. 
We're here to be partners in the greatest adventure in the world. God's plan to rescue people and bring them back into relationship with himself. And that's true for every one of us in this building this morning. Our highest privilege is to work together to call the human race back to God by telling them the good news about his son. Is that a task big enough to give dignity to your life? Is that a task grand enough to give purpose to the things that matter to you at the moment? I think it is. But how are we going to pull it off? Well, let's come briefly to the last thing. Joy in gospel prayer. We've kind of seen how the shared experience of God's grace leads to a shared commitment to God's gospel. But look where it leads to. It leads to a a commitment to pray for one another. And in a sense, we're moving from identity through activity to intimacy. Look with me briefly at verse 9 before we close, will you? And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Gosh, that's dense, isn't it? We know that prayer <coughs> forms a, a vital part of Paul's ministry. He's, he said so back in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. You can imagine that if your name was on Paul's prayer list, you didn't get a casual mention every few months before he moved on to something more important. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy. Here's a man, the words of a man who knows about prayer. A man who is seasoned in the art of praying. And maybe now that his wings have been clipped a bit, and he's under house arrest in Rome, he's got more time to write and to pray. And how does he pray? Look what he prays for. He doesn't pray for superficial things. He doesn't pray about Aunt Agatha's cat or Uncle Tom's ingrown toenail. No, he prays deep gospel prayers. He's praying that the gospel that he longs to see going out will be the gospel that he longs to see coming in more and more deeply. He's praying that the gospel will do its work as a process, look. Knowledge leading to insight, insight leading to discernment, discernment leading to purity, purity leading to blameless, and all of it leading to the day when Jesus comes again. And notice how it starts where the gospel starts. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I just want you to notice, I want you to sort of scan verse 5 and compare it with verse 11. Could you do that for a moment? I want you to see that in verse 5, God's doing it. He's carrying this work on in us until the day Jesus comes back. But in verse 11, we're doing it. Growing in grace so that we will be pure and blameless for the day when Jesus comes back. God's doing it. We're doing it. Oh gosh, we've discovered that we're partners in this great work of the gospel. It's hardly surprising, is it, that Paul writes to the Philippians the way he does? 
You can't pray for people like this, can you? And be emotionally kind of disengaged from them. You can't be unaffected by praying like this. No, the reason he's able to say, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, is because he also says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Prayer like this for people will inevitably transform our relationship with them. Well, let's finish on a high, shall we? English football. Just a, sorry, I didn't get the snigger. Just over a year ago, England suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of Iceland. Manager Roy Hodgson was compelled to resign after the abject embarrassment of losing to a nation ranked 34th in the world. Iceland has a population of 330,000. It's roughly the size of Leicester. How did that happen? How on earth did that happen? It happened because bereft of celebrities and superstars, Iceland played as a team. The search for happiness is no accident. It is wired into our hearts from the very beginning by God himself. Augustine was absolutely right. The essential human search is the search for happiness. Wonderfully, it is possible Wonderfully, it's fundamental, not superficial. Amazingly, it's never found directly. So where is it found? Well, Paul finds it in partnership. The partnership God created us for. It starts with uh, the touch of God's grace on our lives. It leads to a sharing of God's gospel with others. And it results in a shared commitment to growing in grace and in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, I need to ask myself the $64 million question, don't I? Have I found it yet? Individually? Have I found it with you yet? Have we found it with others yet? What do we know of the grace of the Lord Jesus invading our hearts and stretching our minds? Who are we working with? in this great task of winning lost people for Jesus. And who are we praying for? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wonder of being able to know you and love you and do something for you that is deeply significant. Father, we thank you that on the day of judgment you are going to look at what we've done. And you're not just going to brush it aside and say, well, that was irrelevant and insignificant because we can do things that make a difference. And I pray, Lord God, that fired up by your Holy Spirit and motivated by a deep love for people, we will be willing to lay our individualism to one side 
There's no joy there. And find, in partnering with others, a joy we'll never find anywhere else. I do thank you for this lovely group of people. I do pray, Father God, that you would pour your love on them so that they can love each other more and more, and that the love they have from you for one another will overflow. 